another edition of the Unicorns podcast. This is a podcast series featuring business leaders, motivators, innovators, and general go-getters. Well, today I'm talking with Andrew Spark, Executive Chairman of Q Mines, Australia's first zero carbon copper and gold developer. Q Mines recently became just the third ASX listed resources company to be certified carbon neutral by the Australian government, following a rigorous and independent auditing process. The company has been aggressively advancing its zero carbon vision, including recently striking a deal with an Australian company for the long-term supply of renewable fuel, targeting an initial 20% reduction in scope one diesel emissions from drilling and exploration activities. Andrew, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Justin. Okay, so last month, Q Mines received Climate Active Certification. Tell us a bit about the certification and why this is an important achievement for the company. Look, it's a really important achievement. Um, Climate Active, to give your listeners a, a bit of background, is is the real rubber, it's the government-backed rubber stamp in Australia for carbon neutrality. And uh, I, I understand there's only about 350 businesses uh, across Australia, the two odd million businesses plus um, that, that actually have uh, climate active certification. So, so it's a really big step um, forward for our, our company. And, and as you mentioned in the intro, it, it now means that we're only the third ASX listed company uh, to be certified carbon neutral. Um, but, but what's, what's important is it, it is uh, an independent process uh, and it is quite detailed. It took us, you know, um, you know, nine to 12 months. How'd you get it? How did you do it? <laughs> Look, it, it's, it's, it, it actually is, it's quite similar to an audit for a, um, you know, for, for your financial accounts, actually. So, so, so we, we basically started by, um, by going back through every single activity the business actually has done, uh, looking backwards. And we, we had to actually back solve how much water we'd used, how much carbon we'd emitted and whatnot on all those initiatives. So doing it the first time, I've got to say, was was quite a big uh, feat. It'll be a lot easier to do it in years going forward. I bet. But, uh, you know, but it, but look, it was really a great process because it allowed us to, uh, to really understand our business uh, more from an environmental, social and governance perspective. Uh, and also look at, um, you know, what are the best technologies, um, you know, to, to try and curb particularly that, that, that carbon emissions uh, in the business. And I think there's some really nice parallels between being, a, you know, a copper, a copper development company uh, and, and being, you know, um, carbon neutral. So, so it was a big part of our sort of, uh, I suppose, um, business strategy right from, right from the start. So on, the, so on that basis, Andrew, what steps has the company taken to get to this point and what further initiatives do you have planned? Yeah, okay. Well, look, there's been a number, but just to give you the the, the highlights package, I suppose, part of our um, zero carbon roadmap that we've, we've put together as a business um, involves a number of steps. The first one is obviously the E, uh, environmental and uh, and on the environmental side, we've we've now got um, we're, we're now installing our third solar system uh, at our flagship Mount Chalmers site in Queensland. That'll give us uh, about fifty percent of our energy across the business will be um, will be from renewable energy. That also comes with a um, a large battery backup system, so that we can you know continue to operate and you know um, use electricity during the night. 
Uh, we've also got a small wind turbine on site, uh, which which is a one kilowatt wind turbine, and we'll we'll look into that um, further in the future. How big is that? It's one kilowatt. It's it's it looks almost like a uh, a windmill in a, in a farm. It's quite uh, <laughs> quite funny. It sort of sits up above one of the houses we own up on site, and it sort of slowly motors along. So um, you know, some other things we're doing include you know we're actually using rainwater. We're capturing rainwater on site and um, and using it for everything from toilet flushing to washing machines to drinking. Um, you know, right through the right through the um, the operations up there and and as you mentioned um, you know we've just struck a quite an extensive um, agreement with a with a with a large uh, renewable fuel supplier and I suppose peeling back the onion as part of that carbon audit we realized quite early that diesel use uh, in drill rigs and in, in generators and, and in you know in utes and vehicles uh, was our biggest carbon emission as a business. And so that became a really important part of our abatement strategy. So the initial agreement with uh, with the renewable fuel supplier uh, will see about a twenty percent reduction in, in diesel use, which is replaced with with a, a biodiesel. Mm-hmm. But as we get going, uh, you know, we, being candid, we just want to make sure that it didn't uh, it, it worked effectively in the rigs and the utes and that sort of thing before we stepped it up. But but the plan is to slowly increase that over time. So. So yeah, there's a number of initiatives going on. Um, that's just a sort of a, a couple, but um, but you can see we're, we're we're not just in the discussion and strategy phase. We're well and truly beyond that. We've been working on it for 12 months, uh, and. I, we're well past, you know, we're certainly in the implementation phase and going well. So just on that, we've we've seen ESG become a big focus for investors and ESG efforts by some of the majors like BHP and Rio Tinto. They've been widely publicised, but we haven't heard as much about what's happening at the smaller end of the market. What? Why do you think that is? Yeah, look, good, really good question. Uh, and I've been talking a lot about this on a number of ESG panels lately. Um I, I think it actually comes out of two things. No, number one is is capital. Um, you know, obviously at the smaller end, you know, capital is is more sparse, and um, you know, and and it's you know it's harder to commit that capital, I suppose, for some management teams, um, you know, to uh, to things that are that they may deem aren't going to drive you know news flow or, or direct economic benefit to their shareholders. Countering that, I think it I think it actually just comes down to a willingness and 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 the right attitude and and getting the time and getting the timing right too. Exactly right. Yeah, look, it's taken us a lot of effort and um, we've really had to roll up our sleeves and and go and uh, learn a lot about this as well as try and run the business and everything else we're trying to do. So it's it has taken a lot more effort and uh, and we've had to do a you know um, a lot of research over the, the last sort of twelve or eighteen months. Um, but but having done that now. Um, you know, I, I will say that it, it actually isn't that hard and, and you can do it at the smaller end. And that's something that I think we're, we want to be out there really leading the charge in this industry, showing that it's it's not that cost prohibitive if, if you understand, you know, the technologies and the ways to, to abate your emissions. And it's really not that hard. So, so when other C-suite execs are thinking about ESG and everything that goes with it and making sure that they're, they're ticking all of these ESG boxes. Are you saying that once you sort of <laughs> break through the the mental strain of what that might involve, it's it's actually not that difficult? Exactly right. And I think one of the, the big impediments, people think it's going to cost a lot. And just to give you a bit of a sense, the first um, you know solar system that we installed on site cost us about $36,000 Okay, as, as a business. And our, our site at Mount Chalmers is completely off-grid. 
I haven't paid a I haven't paid a power bill in you know eighteen months up there, which is great. So you know there is actually um, if, if you if you flip the the coin, there is actually a benefit to this as well. That you know that you don't have that ongoing uh, that ongoing cost. And and the other the other example I've got is if you look at the renewable fuel, um, we're actually buying the the, the renewable fuel cheaper. Uh, than we're buying diesel at the moment, so so it sounds silly. And yes, we've had to install a really, yeah, no, it's crazy. So um, yes, we've had to install a, a, a you know sixty seventy thousand litre you know um, storage facility on site, but but it's already starting to pay itself off. So 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 if you look at it, if, if you go in with a willing attitude, I think you you know you can do this, um, you know, implement these strategies cost effectively. Well, as you know, ESG isn't just about the environment and the environment aspect. What is QMines doing to meet the social and governance aspects? Yeah, look, I'm really pleased you're talking about the S and the G because quite often you see a lot of focus on the environmental side and not what they, they call it big big E and little S and little G. They're very important parts of actually transitioning your business to a more sustainable business. So, um, you know, on the social uh, side, we've, um, you know, we've, we've been doing a lot of initiatives, including, you know, it sounds funny, but we're, we're sponsoring a local soccer team uh, in Rockhampton near the, near the mine site. Um, we're engaging a lot of the, the local pastoralists and and, um, and farmers to to help us with preparing drill pads and, and working on, around the mine site. Um, we've actually engaged now forty different contractors uh, in Queensland or locally. You know, since since listing only in May, uh, and we've spent probably a little over ten million dollars. Um, you know, on the project and in the region, so we're we're, we're investing in it heavily. Um, but I, I think it's the social side of things is is just as important, if if not more important, because you know we're an exploration company moving towards development, and we know that you know we need to uh, we need to work with the community to get this approved and 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 get that um, you know the common phrase is this social license uh, to operate. So um, so so we've really been quite proactive there, and there are a number of other things that we're uh, we're looking to do um, on the governance side. You know. Having run a, um, a resources fund um, many moons ago, uh, you know, I, I see governance as being really critical uh, to attracting, you know, the right sort of capital. So, so this is something that, um, you know, we've really focused on uh, since we listed in May last year. And when uh, we talk about governance, Andrew, how do you define that? You know, I don't know the textbook definition, but I think the way I look at it is ensuring that you have very rigorous processes in place to ensure that um, you know, you're working in the best interests of all shareholders. You know, you're managing conflicts, you're allocating capital as efficiently as you can to try and you know, drive a certain business plan forward uh, with the ultimate aim of, of adding value for shareholders. And um, so, so governance is quite a broad, a broad term. Um, you know, it, it involves you know, how you make decisions and, uh, you know, and, and you know, making sure certain parts of the business which could be open to conflict are well managed. Yes, having your house in order. Exactly right. And, and you know, you mentioned right at the start that, you know, BHP and Rio Tinto are doing more on the, the environmental side. Well, they're probably doing more on the governance side too, but I, I think that can also change. And so we're, we're really trying to lead this space as well to say that, you know, um, you know, governance is, can be, these good governance structures can be implemented even at a small cap level. Um, and, and they have a direct, I believe they have a direct benefit, um, you know, to the company and to shareholders in that you'll start to attract more 
the right sort of capital if you have these these you know appropriate structures in place. Um, you you know you typically you know will get attract more capital from funds um, that see that that good governance framework. There. They see strong board independence. Uh, they see good you know good decision making and execution of business plans as you know as communicated. So you know I, I think um, you know if, if you can if for companies out there that uh, that are looking at improving some of these structures, I would implore them to um, to really get the you know make make a big effort on the governance side because it will attract more stickier, longer term capital and the right sort of capital to build their business. Well said. So, how are investors responding to your determination, I suppose, and your effort to become Australia's first zero carbon copper and gold developer? Look, I think it's been largely very positive. Um, you know, th- th- I'm seeing sort of a, you know, I suppose two different views. We're, we're not getting as uh, as much uh, response out of the, the retail end of the market, but we're getting fantastic, um, you know, inbound response from a, a lot of strategic um, groups and and a lot of funds. So, so the way I look at it is, you know, when you when you're running a company, uh, in order to add as much value for your shareholders, you have to be in uh, the biggest fish pond, so to speak. You have to have as many as many of those investors out there able to invest in your business as possible. Um, and and you know, and I think by by um, by implementing a lot of these strategies, uh, we've really opened up the the amount of investors and the type of investors that are looking at our business. And and as I said, we've we've just um, you know we're 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 attracting some really good attention. We've actually just done a, a site visit. Um, up on up to our, our flagship project Mount Chalmers recently, and we had uh, I think it was over 20, 20 individuals come up over two two visits, um, which was really surprised us. Actually, we had a lot of interest from a lot of funds and um, a lot of really strategic groups. So, um, so I think I think it is has been really positive. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, there's there's a little bit of a disconnect, particularly at the retail end at the moment. But um, but I think that'll slowly change over time. Well. Let's let's talk about some of the details then. Q Mines made its debut on the ASX in May last year, and in less than a year of being a publicly listed company, you've had multiple milestones, including two resource upgrades. So you've mentioned Mount Chalmers. Talk us through the progress that you're making there on the project in Queensland. Sure thing. So look, obviously, a listing is a big feat in itself. Um, so it was great to uh, to hit the boards on the sixth of May last year, but look, in just nine months, um, you know, we've been able to increase the resource twice already, which is a fantastic feat and testament to the team here at Cubines. And what did that involve, Andrew? Obviously, being a historic mine, there was a lot of historic data, um, you know, that that, um, that was available, uh, and and in the um, uh, the Queensland um, resource, um, you know, um, department, they you actually can access a lot of that information. So. So the first job, it sounds silly, but uh, the first job was to was to go back through all those paper records dating back, you know, to the eighties and, and and beyond. And what do you and what do you look for? Well, yeah, you're looking for drill reports, you're looking for soil samples, anything that's been announced, um, you know. And obviously, there's an obligation of any explorers uh, to to lodge this information as they you know complete exploration activities with with the department. So and that's kept on on file, largely in a you know in a paper format, especially the older uh, the older information. So 
So it sounds funny, but the first job for us was actually just digitizing a massive amount of you know, um, you know paper paper data, and we had I think we had welcome to the twenty first century. That, that's right, and it, it actually worked ex- exceedingly well uh, for for this business, but also our last business. Um, you know, we, we had a, a gold uh, mine in, in in WA, which we sold to a large private equity group end of twenty twenty, and. And we, we really identified that opportunity. When we, when we first got there, we didn't know anything about this mine. Uh, and it was the same at, uh, at Mount Chalmers. And, uh, and after spending sort of six or nine months just digitising all this historic data, you know, it, it became so obvious where to go and chase, you know, extensions to the resource, where to go and, you know, um, where, uh, you know helped us identify other prospective areas and, and so on and so forth and really understand the scale of the opportunity. So... So for the first time, we're now seeing um, all this data in three dimensions, which is a fantastic targeting tool um, for us as, as an exploration business. So, so yeah, so those first two resource updates came from a lot of our own drilling, but also a lot of the historic uh, drilling that was uh, completed on site. So, and you're fairly confident what you're uh, what you've got there. Absolutely, yeah. Look under the the you know the modern or the, the current jaw code you have to validate that historic data. So we've done a a lot of what we call infill drilling um, to go go back and validate that historic data. And there's been very good correlation between the historic data and the data we've been getting. So so we've got a a strong level of confidence um, in that database. And and it sounds funny, but this is a data business like like anything else. And so you've you've really got to make sure you go back to basics and and, validate that data um, um, early on so that you can make sure it's, it's giving you the right uh, the right information. What's the scale potential there at Mount Chalmers? Okay, so look, we think it's we think it's really large. Mm. Well, that's, that's good news. That's not just lip service, you know. This is called what we call a VHMS deposit. And for the geologists or the technical people in the room will know this well, but, but effectively there's two key characteristics of a VHMS deposit. Um, one is uh, they're generally higher grade or higher value per tonne. Uh, actually one of the highest value per tonne of all copper-bearing deposit styles. Uh, but secondly, um, you know, they, they actually, and this is the most important part, is they cluster. Okay, so what, what that means is you, you generally see with VHMS deposits, multiple deposits within a cluster. Uh, and typically, if you look through history, they're, they're somewhere between, um, I think it's, um, you know, five and 40 individual deposits um, typically uh, w- within the average VHMS deposit. So uh, and if, if, you, if you look at what we're doing up at Mount Chalmers, um, you know, we've, we've actually identified seven additional deposits or prospects outside the, the main mine site that we haven't even got to yet. So, you know, we, we're really excited about this year because this, yeah, yeah. So it's, it, we're really excited about this year because we believe that, um, you know, we, we've got a lot more volume on the way, a lot more scale on the way. So it's, um, yeah, it's quite, uh, quite exciting. So you're partway through a huge drilling program and we've been talking about resource upgrades. I imagine a third resource upgrade is not too far away. So when, when do you anticipate completion of your drilling and then you release the results of what you found and in what sort of shape you're in? Okay, so we've got a lot of assays in the labs at the moment. We've just had a, um, we've got two rigs uh, on site uh, as we speak. Uh, we've just had eleven diamond holes go into uh, into the assay labs, um, ALS in Brisbane. So we're, we're we're waiting on that news. 
and and so um, uh, but we've we've actually got a, an RC rig on site as well, which is kicking off a, an initial ten thousand meter program, which we'll, we'll look to do over the coming months. So there's a lot of news flow on the way and lots of leverage for um, to exploration success, and that's something that we've we've always wanted to. We believe the more you drill, the more you, you know, the more probability you've got of finding. Exactly. That's the reason. I like so, it. I like it. So we've, we've actually bought our own drill rig uh, over the break um, so that we could really step up the exploration efforts this year. Um, you know, we, we the, the real target of the business is to get to about that 200,000 tonnes of contained copper, uh, which is about 1.1 million ounces of gold um, and uh, quickly. And so we think we can get there hopefully this year um, with but. But certainly we don't think it's, you know, we think there's a lot more potential beyond that. We just want to get to that sort of critical mass quickly so that we can we can start our development works and try and develop this uh, this asset, this cycle. So, so yeah, lots, lots of things on the, on the horizon. Well, just on that, um, you mentioned retail investors before and, and punters. So what, what can you tell them about the things that are coming up and give them some confidence that Q Mines is... Um, a company to have a look at and maybe um, maybe take a punt on. Yeah, absolutely. So, so look, I think I think the first thing is you know we've got because of this I mentioned before is the VHMS deposit and because of all the work we've done now we've got three additional deposits uh, around the mine site which already drilled and modelled um, which which aren't currently in that resource uh, and that basically means to, to new investors that we've got a, almost a de-risked resource growth path from here, uh, which and, and our business isn't subject to the same sort of expiration risk, Greenfield's expiration risk you typically see. So okay. yeah. so, so that's the first thing. So we, we've managed our risk uh, and we've managed the, the path to a bigger resource um, over the course of this year. Um, the second thing is, as I've mentioned before, we've got lots and lots of leverage here to that expiration success. You know, thirty thousand meter program is what we have planned, uh, and and you know that's that's thirty kilometers of drilling. So, so you know, um, this is a region where <laughs> a lot of drilling. It, it is. That's right. So, this is a region where you you're seeing some of the highest grade gold grade VMS deposits in the world, uh, and and just um, just southwest of us, we've got a very large um, mine called Mount Morgan's, which was a another v, high grade VHMS deposit. Um, so there's some really big analogies in this region. Uh, so we, we're you know, really quite excited about that leverage that we can provide to our shareholders uh, to further exploration success. Um, but, but finally, I think, and most importantly, is the fact that, you know, um, you know and when I was running the, the, the resources fund for five or six years, you know, we always struggled to find quality copper deposits uh, or copper, copper companies, copper developers. Uh, particularly in Australia, and so there's this real scarcity of quality copper um, developers out there. And and this year, by the end of this year, we're hopeful to have sufficient scale uh, to start to transition into development. And and I think you know from a, a 28 million market cap today or a EV of sort of 22 million, um, if you look at a lot of the copper developers out there that are in Australia, and there's not many, um, you know they're, they're all sort of between sort of four and four and six hundred million market cap. So you know, so there's there's a, a lot of good analogy. That'd be very nice, Andrew. Yeah, that's right. So I think I think this is going to be our year for Q Mines. It's a very cheap entry point at this at this uh, at this time, uh, and we're already quietly working on a lot of those development initiatives behind the scenes. So lots of lots of great things on the horizon. Well, you mentioned copper, and you've got the the war in Europe. 
Ukraine and Russia. You've got the end of, well, hopefully the the, the, the near end, I should say, of, of COVID. It, look, it's all having an impact on the price of the red metal, which is hitting new records. So what, what's happening in terms of supply and demand and where do you see that price of copper going? Look, it's a very good question. And and I will start by saying it's, you know, it's, you know, no one wants this war. So it's, 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 it's it, you know, whilst it's, it's great to see that uh, a lot of these commodity prices moving, uh, moving north, it's, you know, no one likes seeing it happening on the back of uh, what's going on in Ukraine. So that's, I think that's the first point that's important to make. Um, um, but, you know, where is it going? So I, I think the way I look at it, and, you know, I, I've been sort of following um, the demand supply curve in copper very closely, as you can imagine, for 12 or 18 months. And, you know, I think everyone can see um, the strong demand growth that's coming with the, the electrification of, uh, uh, you know, of the world uh, and this um, this transition that we're going through, this energy transition. So I won't talk about the demand because I think that's well known and well documented. Uh, I'm going to talk about the supply because I think the supply or a potential sh- supply shock is is where we could see the next you know really significant move in um, in copper like we've seen in 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 many of the other um, you know battery metals recently. So um, for a lot of your listeners may may or may not be aware, but 40% of the world's copper comes from two countries. Uh, Chile is the largest producer, followed by Peru, and a lot of those deposits are big what we call porphyry deposits. They're large, they're low grade, um, and they're very high up in the Andes. So they're very high altitude um, and a long way from the coast. And the challenge that um, that is going on um, in Chile and Peru at the moment is we've just had some recent elections. There's a, a very, um, there's a change in the mood in a lot of those countries in terms of um, you know, a lot of the people in, in those countries do not feel that they've, they've benefited from um, you know, this the massive amount of copper production that's occurred in those countries. Uh, and so there's changes in tax regimes being planned. Um, there's there's community, um, you know, distrust uh, with a lot of the mining companies and so on and so forth. So so that's, that's the first point. Secondly, um, just trying to transport your workforce uh, and electricity and, and water up into the Andes is a, is a massive feat and, you know, um, so, so these a lot of these mines are really struggling to get um, water that they need to actually process their ores, and the electricity in, in a um, uh, in you know they're, they're having constant issues with electricity to power uh, these sites. So, um, so look, I believe there's a few examples, and I could go into a whole lot more, but I believe that the um, we could see a major shock price positive price shock in copper more. From the from issues on the supply side, um, um, you know, in the future, and that's that's so that's something that I'm I'm watching closely. I think everyone can see that we're we're just off all time highs, and you know, it's been uh, trending up really nicely over the last sort of eighteen months. So I think the demand side, you know, everyone knows there's a there's a deficit in the market, um, you know, of four hundred plus thousand tons. So, um, so, but I, I really think it's the supply side that could uh, could surprise everyone. Okay, final question, Andrew. We're twelve months down the track. Where is Q Mines, and what sort of shape is it in? Okay, in, in a talking hypothetically, I th- I think we've got this the you know the sufficient scale that we need to transition into into development. Uh, I think um, I think we'll have already had a lot of the development works um, you know um, it, at least substantially started or. Or, or well and truly, um, you know, close to, to being finalised. 
uh, we, we will be either close or uh, close to having a, a, our first feasibility, a maiden feasibility study out and potentially a maiden oil reserve statement and, and starting to think about how we move this, this, this forward into a mining scenario. So, so it's an aggressive plan. Um, we've got a, a younger team here at Q Mines and with lots of, lots of skin in the game, we own about 43% of the stock. So um, yeah, we, we're really keen to move this forward uh, aggressively. Uh, and as I, as I said earlier on, we've got our third resource update planned uh, in the coming months. So, um, so I think we'll be a whole lot further down the line and, and, and starting to think about how we develop this, this mine. Great to hear. Andrew Spark, Executive Chairman of Q Mines. Best of luck in the future and many thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Justin. 